This is essential. Essential. This is essential audio. 600 BC, the monetary coin, the first ever form of currency, is produced in what is now modern-day Turkey. Over 1,000 years later, in 1694, the first ever banknote was issued by the Bank of England. In 1871, the Western Union debuted the Electronic Fund Transfer, or EFT. More recently, in 2009, Satoshi Nakamoto mined the Genesis block, birthing cryptocurrency. And on the horizon, in late 2020 or 2021, maybe even 2022, the next form of money or fiat currency, the digital currency, will arrive. And with it brings so many questions. What form will it take? Who will be the first to launch one? And will it be the future of money as we know it? We'll be finding out answers to these questions on this week's The Money Pod, our podcast at Money 2020. My name is Sanjeev Kalita, Editor-in-Chief of Money 2020. And joining me on this podcast is Gary Dempsey, the content leader for Money 2020 Europe. Sanjeev, I am so happy to be here. I am absolutely obsessed with this topic. Whether it's Libra, central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs as we've come to call them, I am so excited to be witness to what could be the future or the next iteration of money itself. Gary, I just knew you'd bring that digital currency energy to the podcast this week. Our special guest this week was Jesse McWaters. Hi, my name is Jesse McWaters. I'm a VP Digital Policy at MasterCard, which means that I'm responsible for tracking an array of digital trends that are happening in the marketplace and thinking about how they are impacting uh, the policy landscape of payments businesses. Before joining MasterCard in 2019, I worked for the World Economic Forum, where I oversaw all of their research on fintech, including looking at blockchain, AI, digital ID, and more. We spoke to Jesse in depth about digital currencies and how it's really critical to understand what a central bank digital currency is and how it's distinct from other types of payment mechanisms. My initial thoughts on digital currencies were, how is it actually different from cash or e-money? Why would anyone need a central bank digital currency? When I'm out shopping or buying something online and I use my debit or credit card or I pay on my phone, I'm already using a digital currency, right? Those are digital transactions. When you make a transfer from one bank account to another, you're transferring a set of liabilities that roll up to those banks. Effectively, your deposits in a bank are a promise by that bank to provide you those funds uh, at any time you need them. That's distinct from when you hold a 10-pound note or a $10 bill uh, in your hand that bill is a a promise from the central bank. And so when we talk about central bank money, that today only really has two forms. One, it's the physical cash that you and I can carry around and spend. And it's deposits made directly at the central bank by large financial institutions. So we're talking about a new natively digital form of central bank money. Effectively, the ability for you or I to hold cash-like assets that we can transfer between each other. Exactly, Sanjeev. Jesse went on to tell us in detail about what makes them unique and what sets them apart from regular money or cash. One of the things that's important to remember when we look at central bank digital currencies analytically is the difference between what 
can be provided by a CBDC from what can only be provided by a CBDC. Really, there are a, a wide array of new payments platforms that could be deployed in economies today that could achieve goals like enabling programmability, micropayments, fostering financial inclusion. What's unique about central bank digital currencies is that they convey this cash-like characteristic, that they are central bank money. And I think that's important to remember when central banks think about whether or not a central bank digital currency is the best path to payments modernization within their economies. And so when we think about a CBDC, and indeed when most central bankers think about a CBDC, they want to deploy a two-tier approach. That's one in which the core infrastructure is enabled by the central bank, but where you would actually, as an individual, go and access that money through a bank or a fintech or an e-money provider who might pass you tokens that were issued by the central bank or manage an account at the central bank in trust for you. And you would see competition between those various players to provide the best sort of central bank digital currency experience that they could. This ties to the episode last week. We talked about the concept of an individual owning an account through the central bank and the banks and fintechs being the service providers. So I guess the reason there's so much buzz around central bank digital currencies is because of Libra? You guessed it. It sounds like Facebook is responsible for the arms race for digital currencies, which to me sounds a bit like history repeating itself. I remember working on Google Wallet nearly a decade ago, which brought a lot of energy and attention to mobile payments. Is big tech once again legitimizing a new space? In a manner of speaking, I think the answer to that one is mostly yes. Facebook obviously announced in June 2019 that they had intended to launch their own currency, Libra, which users of their platforms like Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram could use to buy and purchase using this new digital currency. And initially, this was planned out to be its own unique currency that would be pegged to the country of the user's national currency and was touted early on to be a stablecoin. And then came Calibra, which was the digital wallet. And then there was the Libra network, which was made up of a number of companies who would form the blockchain network, which a currency would operate on. Exactly. Fast forward a year later, and a lot has changed. Calibra is now Novi for one. They've got themselves a new name and new branding. They've also been on a super interesting hiring spree and onboarded a number of very appropriate industry names to bolster Novi's trust and reputation. I think this is a direct result of various governments, regulators and central banks around the world who are like, hold on a minute, and started to pay close attention to what this could mean for the world. And now we have almost every major nation central bank looking at developing their own digital currency. So we've seen this enormous increase over the last 12 to 18 months in the interest of central banks in rolling out CBDCs and particularly in rolling out retail CBDCs, those that you and I can directly transact in. Um, and when you go and you read through those papers, what you'll see is that there is an absolute litany of reasons that they give for it. And the reasons that they might want to are really defined by the particular characteristics of a country. And so you see central, the central bank saying, hey, maybe this is an opportunity 
for us to reduce the cost of cash management by giving people a digital substitute for cash. I think another factor spurring this on is a huge decline in the use of cash from the switch to digital payments around the world, but also from COVID-19. Lockdowns and social distancing have seen cash fall by the wayside in favor of contactless and digital payments. Frictionless payments were driven by convenience the past few years, but now frictionless equals physical safety. Yes, the switch to digital payments was something that really pushed forward the exploration of CBDCs in Sweden. I think one of the most interesting examples that we're seeing is in Sweden. Sweden is ahead of the rest of the world in terms of the decline in use of cash. Almost all transactions today are conducted electronically, and that means that, that cash is really increasingly in short supply. The Riksbank, the central bank of Sweden, is concerned that if the economy lacked central bank money that your average person could access, that might, particularly in times of financial instability, lead to financial crisis. And so they're exploring the deployment of Nikrona as a replacement to cash in a world where individuals just don't really want to use cash anymore. And so what we see here is a world in which central banks have a variety of interests in central bank digital currency and where as when you roll out any new type of payment platform, there's a lot of interest in how the central bank might be able to add new functionality. I remember first learning about Bitcoin 10 years ago, thinking that this was such a cool packaging of technologies and that it was truly disruptive and transformative. From there to here, it's amazing that central banks are at this point. But I'd imagine that even with all the power and prestige of a central bank, there are a lot of challenges of getting a CBDC off the ground. I mean, we're talking about entire national economies here. Absolutely. That's a critical concern that I asked Jesse about. It's absolutely critical if you're thinking about deploying a new form of money to consider all of the implications that that might have on the broader economy. And what we see today is central bankers around the world taking very slow, considered, highly analytical steps to make sure they understand the implications of central bank digital currencies, not just in general, but specifically for their own countries. And so there are a number of uncertainties that they have to tackle as they think about deploying these assets. They're inevitably going to be the target of cyber attacks, including likely state-sponsored cyber attacks. So that that security component is absolutely critical. There's also significant macroeconomic ramifications of deploying an asset like this. Well, it's an important question about where the money is going to come from to go into that CBDC. If you're going to take physical cash and you're going to replace your usage of physical cash with usage of a CBDC, well, you know, you've exchanged central bank money or central bank money. Another topic of discussion I've been following is how CBDCs can change, if not potentially disintermediate, the role of commercial banks. Did you get a chance to explore that? We certainly did. One of the potential risks of CBDC is the disintermediation of banks. If the currency is issued by the central bank and made available to consumers through new or digitally native channels, then why do we need the banks involved? 
Jesse also elaborated on other factors that could lead to the bank's disintermediation. That's obviously something that we need to be very careful about, particularly because central bankers don't necessarily know how much of this CBDC people are going to want to hold. If it's a relatively small amount, impacts on the economy are minimal. If it's large, then the impacts could be really significant. And that's going to be something that's challenging to forecast. One of the things that's special about a central bank digital currency is that it has that central bank guarantee. Uh, and you always know that the central bank is going to be able to pay because, in a, in a sense, they, they own and more or less control the printing press for, for printing more of that central bank money. Um, and that means that some folks are concerned that during a period of financial crisis, we could see a flight out of the commercial banking system into the CBDC. And that run, if you will, on the banks could accelerate the destabilization of the financial system. And so you see central banks thinking about an array of tools that they could use to manage those risks and to ensure that a CBDC wouldn't contribute to the destabilization of the economy during periods of financial unrest. Soundness, solvency, and stability have always been keywords when I've had discussions with central banks and regulators. Given that we have centuries of history with central bank physical currency, I'd imagine that these keywords are also making the leap to digital. They are. Among the many threads to think through, there's the underlying technology which could include blockchain and is relatively new, but which can also deliver benefits that prior technologies could not. And I think if you look recently at the discussion paper that was produced by the Bank of England, which is, I think, a, a really robust and thoughtful vision of a CBDC and how it might exist within the economy, they've looked at the core infrastructure and they've said blockchain is something that could enable this, but we haven't necessarily concluded that it's the right technology to fit. And so I think you see central banks looking at blockchain and saying this might be the right thing to build a next generation payment system on, or we might want to use a more tried and tested approach. I think that that is a mirror almost to how I think central banks should be looking at CBDCs in and of themselves. Um, I don't think that it's the right approach to look at a CBDC and say, hey, if it creates value, we should deploy it. Instead, we should look at the variety of payment tools that exist to meet the central bank's needs and pick the best one for the, um, for the needs. And so in a case like Sweden, where they're specifically concerned about the disappearance of cash, they need to convey that central bank money in a new method to their, to their consumers, uh, then, it, then it makes sense. In other cases where your primary goal is financial inclusion or where your primary goal is uh, um, increased um, control of financial crime, you might want to look at a CBDC in contrast to, for example, real-time payment systems or other types of approaches. And we see hybrid approaches uh, being deployed and, and, and explored in a variety of countries around the world. Now we know what kinds of digital currencies there are and how to deploy them. Let's talk about who is working on them. Sure. I've been likening this to the space race in the early 1960s, except there are a huge number of players in this digital currencies arms race. The first being People's Bank of China, 
Almost as soon as the announcement came out about Libra, the PBOC announced that they have been working on a digital one for five years. That CBDC is currently being trialed in a number of cities in China. Then you have the Digital Dollar Foundation, which is looking to create a CBDC from the United States. This recently launched initiative includes former regulators in partnership with the private sector. Similarly, the project envisions a CBDC future where digital currencies are issued to commercial banks, which then perform the direct-to-consumer services they've done for decades, but this time with a digital currency. In the UK, the Bank of England has published a discussion paper on CBDCs, where they call for input from the industry. Some interesting points raised by the paper are how CBDCs can improve cross-border payments. This actually comes up in most of the examples. The paper also discusses the technology where they stated that DLT or blockchain technology can be used, but it isn't dependent on it. And it could be built on more conventional centralized technology. As mentioned earlier, there's the eKrona project, which is led by Sweden's Riksbank. The project began in 2017 and began being tested in February of this year and runs through February of next year. According to the Reichsbank, and I quote, the aim of the project is to see how an e-krona can be used by the general public, end quote. The European Commission have also followed suit for an e-euro. There are loads of examples and loads of different motivations behind them. And Jesse shared his opinion on what they all have in common. Something that is, I think, in common is that there are a, a common set of principles that I think a, a CBDC should adhere to in order to best support the needs uh, of those countries. There are obviously tweaks on the top that'll need to be made, but there are some core attributes I think a CBDC should have in order to drive forward that payment modernization. And the first, I think the most important, is that there's a complementary role for the central bank and for the private sector in rolling out this kind of payments infrastructure. But I think it's also important for a consumer to understand how that instrument might be different from other instruments that they have in their wallet or their digital wallet. And what that really means is, it's going to be important to understand if the CBDC is like cash. If you lose it, is it lost on your debit or credit card? Can it be reissued? If you make a payment with it and then want to take that payment back, is there a mechanism for that type of chargeback? What type of fraud protections exist around that payment? Every time you roll out a new payment method, even if it's something as simple as tapping and go with a payment instrument that you already have, we understand that consumers need to be educated on that. When you're talking about something as radical as a, a new form of money, I think there's a lot of education that's going to be required around that. There'll definitely need to be a lot of education, especially with how consumers, businesses, and economies are changing so quickly. And the pace of change will only be accelerated by CBDCs. Similar to how the internet was a catalyst for groundbreaking retail experiences, CBDCs could be a catalyst for groundbreaking financial experiences. In sum, I think this means that a CBDC is going to be best positioned have a positive role in moving forward the modernization of payment systems within the economy, where it takes advantage of the capabilities of the private sector, where it interoperates with existing systems, both uh, stores of value and acceptance networks, where it ensures that consumers understand the asset and understand the ways in which it protects them, and in which we deliver extensibility 
that allows us to continue to build future innovations on top of the foundation of the CBDC. Okay, so from everything we've heard, it sounds like actual central bank digital currencies won't be in our wallets just yet. There's a huge amount of buzz around CBDCs at the moment, but I don't think we will get to see one rolled out in the next year, apart from the launch of Libra or Novi. But pure central bank digital currencies, I think we are looking at somewhere between three and five years. I think because the rollout will be incredibly complicated, because as Jesse mentioned, they need to integrate into all of the planned modernization of payments infrastructure. The wheels are very much in motion. I wonder what the CBDC future looks like. I was particularly interested in getting Jesse's view on this. When we think about moving towards the CBDC future, and when we think about what that ecosystem would look like, I think that in a lot of ways, the model that's recently been explored by the Bank of England in their discussion paper is a great starting point for thinking about that. They've taken the view of almost a minimalist approach to a CBDC, one in which the role of the central bank is to deploy uh, a highly resilient, uh, controlled piece of infrastructure for the issuance and the distribution of CBDCs, and in which the distribution, the consumer experience, that's enabled by the private sector. Um, And you can imagine a variety of actors playing roles in making all of that work together. You can imagine banks and fintechs competing with one another in terms of providing people with the best user experience to engage with their CBDCs. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of The Money Pod. We will be back next week with another episode. I want to say a huge thank you to our fantastic guest this week, Jesse McWaters from MasterCard. And we want to thank our producers, Rachel Morrissey and Roland Boddenham. Digital currency will be a major topic at this year's Money 2020 Europe. We'll spend an entire afternoon delving deeper into this topic and exploring the possibilities involved with creating the future of money as we know it. These topics are detailed on our agenda page where you can read more. Just go to europe.money2020.com. Thank you for joining us. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review in iTunes. Be sure to write us with suggestions at podcast at money2020.com. Also, the Europe show is in Amsterdam on September 22nd to 24th. The US show is in Las Vegas on October 25th to 28th. And Rise Up applications are now open. Thank you and take care. This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio.